Hello and welcome to the St. Peter Institute podcast. My name is Marcus Peter, the president of the Institute and your host for today. Joining me is our guest, Justin Van Lee McLean. Justin is a blogger for the National Catholic Register. He is a consultant and writer with Ave Maria Press, um, he, having authored at least five books with them, including Called to Teach, Daily Inspiration for Catholic Educators, Called to Pray, A Guide to Prayer Within Catholic Schools, Alleluia to Amen, The Prayer Book for Catholic Parishes, and last but not least, The History of the Catholic Church, and he wrote this as a part of the Encountering Jesus series within Ave Maria Press. So uh, Justin is also a theology teacher and Spanish teacher at Bishop McNamara High School in the Archdiocese of Washington. The school itself is located in Prince George's County, Maryland. Justin resides there with his bride, Bernadette Marie, and four children, John Paul, Therese, Mary Christine, and Dominique. How are you doing, Justin? It's, uh, it's an honor to have you on board. I'm doing well. Thank you, Marcus. And it truly is an honor to be here today. Yeah, uh, Thank you for having me on your program. I'm, I'm very, very blessed that you said yes to the invitation. So uh, Justin has a heart for many things pertaining to uh, the, the evangelization of souls. But in particular today, we'd like to focus on the theme of Catholic education. So Justin, I'm, I'm going to essentially hand the reins over to you at this point. Tell us what we mean by Catholic education. What does the church understand by means of Catholic education? And then we'll go from there. So it's very curious that we're talking about this right now in the midst of this quarantine within the United States and around the globe when we talk about what constitutes education per se, especially from a faith perspective. Education means to build up, to build up to edify the youth, to provide a, a structure. When we talk about Catholic education, it always has to be undergirded by robust catechesis whether this is in a K-12 Catholic school, whether this is in a university or college setting, whether this is in a homeschooling setting, whether this is in a setting of the classical or liberal arts institution, or whether we're talking about a tutorial, such as where my wife teaches at St. Peter the Rock Homeschool Tutorial, just to give them a little shout out here. So when we talk about Catholic education, Sometimes we have an idea of what that is, maybe a preconceived notion, but ultimately it is a ministry of the Catholic Church whereby anyone really uh, has the ability to learn about life and God's plan for us from the worldview, from the perspective of Catholicism. Oh, thank you very much, Justin. So uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, what, what I'd like to start with would be a, a very scriptural understanding of education as a whole before we talk about some of the other things that, that we'd like to explore today, uh, which are including, amongst other things, catechesis, evangelization. But uh, just prior to that, scripture has this understanding of the role of the parent in guiding the child and educating the child. Uh, we see in the Proverbs, of King Solomon, that it is the role of a parent to guide a child in the way he should go, and in his adulthood, he will never depart from it. Uh, church documents on Catholic education, like Gravissimo Medicationis, uh, highlights the same thing too. Right from paragraph three, it makes it very, very clear this is the role of parents, and to supplement that role is extremely difficult. So uh, just share your thoughts on that. I mean, being the father of 
some very beautiful children. And it's clear that faith is the foundational identity of your family. So uh, just share with us pertaining to Catholic education within the home and how Catholic schools or other Catholic programs supplement that. So the best thing that a Catholic educational institution can do is to reinforce parents' role as the primary educators of their children. Uh, parents are independent of any other consideration within education, the primary educators, the primary formers of their children's hearts and minds. Uh, St. John Paul II emphasized this multiple times, and previous to him, so did uh, Paul VI with uh, Revisimum Educationis, which is one of my favorite Vatican II documents, really one of the ones that's perhaps more undervalued, but it really is so critical. So the mother and the father always have such a key role within society in terms of their truly God-given role of forming their children, of encouraging their children toward holiness, toward godliness, ideally. That's why parents' role is such a a divine one, if I may say so, in terms of our call to bring our children closer to Christ. If we fail in that, if we neglect to even attempt to do that, then that's an injustice to our children. Part of discipleship is calling others to Christ. So if we as parents are not doing that, then we are neglecting our God-given role as the mother and father which we see all throughout the scriptures of drawing our children closer to God. So the teacher is merely a participant in that. We are called to get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit do his job. So when I think about Catholic education and the parents' role, that's what it is, that of helping parents to form their children. We cannot do it entirely ourselves. We can only do it in a way that helps children along. If you look at the saints all throughout history, they could not be disciples independently. Rather, they were disciples simply helping along in this process of evangelization as the Holy Spirit does the work. So, as a Catholic educator, I try to help parents to foster faith in their children. Wow. Okay. Uh, that, that, uh, that puts a lot into perspective. So in that light then, just given this, so I was raised, I, uh, I, you and I had a conversation about this before. Having grown up in Asia, I was raised with a very secular notion or a secular mindset of, uh, advancement in society, achievement was the sole purpose of one's existence, and religion was something you did on the side of making sure that this prime uh, telos is achieved. But now what you're telling me is that holiness is the goal of education, let alone Catholic education, and that is the prime role of parents. Uh, would you please comment on this kind of disconnect between how society is telling us 
that children should be educated versus what the Catholic Church has been saying all along pertaining to the education of children? Certainly. When we look at the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church's role, if you will, right out of Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. So when we look at the Catholic Church, education is merely one ministry of various within it. So when we talk about the participation that's necessary between Catholic educational institutions and parents, I can share various encounters I've had in which I've been able to share faith experiences with the parents of my students and likewise to learn from them in matters of faith. So there really is that exchange. And when we look at, if you will, the quote-unquote religious mindset and the secular mindset, I believe in many ways the United States is ground zero for that mentality, if you look at it. Uh, so much so that often when we hear the word religion in society, it often has a negative connotation. Typically, when people use the word religious, who are not themselves religious, it comes sometimes with a bit of an insult. Uh, perhaps small-mindedness, uh, perhaps a lack of intellectual aptitude, uh, perhaps a severe dogmatism that doesn't uh, permit the full expanse of a worldview. But within Catholicism, we talk about how the word Catholic means universal. It doesn't mean that we accept any mindset as equal to a valid mindset. Rather, what it means is that we proclaim the truth, goodness, and holiness that Christ proclaimed into the world. So we go out and evangelize. We are apostles in that way, lowercase a apostles, in terms of mm -hmm. our efforts to bring Christ out into the world, to proclaim the gospel in that way. How does that look as far as education goes? It comes in various formats, but ultimately, Catholic education should provide students with an alternative to a secular worldview. Paul talked about this often, especially there within Romans in particular, as well as his other letters, that we are called to be the face of Christ in the world, if you will. Various saints, such as St. Teresa of Calcutta, likewise, talked about this very aspect. So within Catholic education, if we are not equipping students with an alternative worldview, then they're going to be absolutely mentally slammed when they step into many college classrooms, or when they step into a hyper-secularized society that in many ways, within its own dogmatism, is closed off to the possibility of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, as we read in John 14, 6. Okay. Thank you, thank you, Justin. Thank you for that. So, uh, just springboarding off of a comment you made earlier, uh, in that light, if we talk about, if we talk about giving students the capacity of being able to engage the culture at large, 
you mentioned how Catholic education has to be grounded within a very robust catechesis. I'd like to ask you to comment on that. And then I have a follow-up question pertaining to all of the other subjects and how they work towards this work of robust catechesis. Certainly. So let's look at those two words, robust and catechesis. And actually, I'm going to flip it around. We'll look at catechesis first and then robust. So catechesis, essentially handing on the rudiments of faith, but in addition to the rudiments of the Catholic faith, also the capacity to defend them and the capacity to go deeper intellectually. If a Catholic does not have the capacity to see a teaching of the church within a doctrinal setting or dogmatic setting, but especially within a doctrinal setting, perhaps, which is where we find morality, if a Catholic does not have the capacity to explain the goodness, holiness, and beauty behind that teaching, then it will only be seen as an inadequate expectation of the Catholic Church. Oh, there is another rule that the Catholic Church has, for instance. So catechesis has to be the accurate transmission of the Catholic faith in terms of doctrine and dogma. As a lay Dominican, this is what the Dominican order does, essentially. Our motto is veritas, truth. So we proclaim the goodness, holiness, and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth that undergirds it. In terms of the robustness of catechesis that is necessary, it has to be strong. It cannot be tepid. It cannot be lukewarm. It cannot be weak. Because if so, then our youth in particular, since we're talking about students within education, will not have the capacity to defend the teachings of the church. So it has to be robust. When we look at the intellectual tradition of the Catholic Church, oh my goodness, don't we have it there. Aquinas. Oh, I won't go in any particular order, but uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, St. Paul, St. Catherine of Siena, uh, St. Albertus Magnus, who was St. Thomas Aquinas' teacher, St. Benedict, who essentially was the, the father of Western monasticism, who carried forth the life of the intellectual tradition from antiquity through the Middle Ages into the Renaissance, into the modern era. Where would that knowledge of antiquity be if not for these Catholic monasteries who were furthering the advancement of that information. And we can look at that and say that was Catholic education in a way. So in terms of robust catechesis, we have to give students the ability and the tools to be able to hand on knowledge of the faith. Even if they themselves are not Catholic, 
perhaps still having the ability to explain, okay, this is why the Catholic Church teaches what it does. Even if a student decides not to abide by that, not to live according to that, that's a reality. But at least being able to respect the teachings of the Catholic Church and to have the language and the intellectual aptitude to be able to convey, this is why Catholicism teaches this, especially in terms of the hard teachings. One thing I always ask my students, which is Jesus' hardest teaching? All of them, to someone, sometime, somewhere, somehow. We can't look at any one of his teachings and say, oh, that one's easy to follow. Oh, that one's simple to follow. No, they're all a challenge in some way. So with that robust catechesis, we truly challenge students in that way to have the capacity to be current disciples and future saints. Okay, uh, so, so this, this engenders a further question, but I just want to go back to my earlier follow-up question. In that light, then, uh, I, I come from a science background long before I became a theology teacher. What, what is the role of, say, the hard sciences? What is the role of teaching history or teaching the languages? What, what is the role of all of these other sciences in light of this robust catechesis within the framework of Catholic education then? So earlier within Catholic education, I mentioned the classical and liberal arts framework, that philosophy, if you will, that mindset as far as education goes. And I, for one, minister at an intersection of Catholic educational settings. I'm a veteran teacher in a classroom in a well-established Catholic school. My wife and I homeschool. My wife teaches in a tutorial, and my own educational philosophy depends heavily on classical and liberal arts approaches to education. So I'm going to go with the latter there. In talking about how within classical and liberal arts settings, we have this deep integration of the different subjects. Rather than the temptation to pigeonhole our thoughts or to say, this topic belongs in science class. This topic belongs in history class. This topic belongs in art class. This topic belongs in English class. And then, oh, by the way, this topic belongs in religion or theology class. That cannot be. We have to have a deep integration in different schools, that's going to look different ways, but at least it can mean when I'm talking about genetics in a biology class, let me talk about Gregor Mendel, who is an Augustinian monk. When I talk about the Pythagorean uh, theory, in math class, let me also use that as an opportunity 
to talk about how it was the Greco-Roman worldview, which was the worldview within which the gospel initially grew as an antidote in various ways to the secularization that was found there. But likewise, we had that robust philosophy that later was at the service of the church, especially within the Middle Ages. So that's what that can look like. To give a little bit of a testimony here, when I was away from the Catholic Church from roughly the years 1998 to 2004, more or less for that span in time, before my reversion to the Catholic Church, I didn't necessarily have that mature of an understanding. But what did I have? I had the seeds that had been planted by so many different teachers in different subjects who took their faith seriously. And that later came back to help me tremendously in terms of growing in my faith. My seventh grade teacher, Mrs. Hartman, who although science per se was her specialty, would always emphasize the importance of mass and about participation in the mass. Or Mr. Messenger, who I had in high school for mathematics, although that wasn't my best subject in terms of my performance, at the same time, I so seriously paid attention to how important his faith was to him. It wasn't until later that I really ruminated upon that and truly received it in terms of internalizing the seriousness with which they took their faith, but they brought the faith into their classrooms. There was never some sort of antagonism between this subject and a matter of faith. As I often tell teachers, especially teachers of subjects beyond theology, you bringing faith into your classroom is going to be 10 times more impactful in terms of your students' faith life. Because as the theology teacher, I have to talk about this. Oh, Mr. McLean has to talk about why the Catholic Church teaches this about morality. But all of a sudden, when, let's say, the, uh, just to, give a, a, a random example. When the music teacher, let's say, is talking about how St. Cecilia, the patron saint of music, was a martyr who was brutally killed for professing her faith in Christ, and the music with which she, she worshipped the Lord was ancillary to her deep love for the Lord as shown in how she gave her life for the Lord. Wow. All of a sudden, it's not just about music. It's about that being one avenue within which to glorify God. So if I'm in a music class, if I'm a high school student in a music class and hear that, wow. So faith is not something that is to be simply compartmentalized 
it's something in which all of the subjects can bring faith together. I know that was a longer response, but it's something that I'm truly passionate about. And that is about educators in every subject using your right, duty, and ultimately privilege of teaching in a Catholic school to bring the gospel to your students. As far as the expectations of the church, this is not a suggestion. The creativity with which it is done is another story, but it is an expectation since every employee of any Catholic institution is a minister of the faith in some way. So it's not a choice in that way in terms of at least allowing the gospel to be transmitted to students. How that looks is going to look very differently from one class to another, from one setting to another, but whether you're a coach, a volunteer, a classroom teacher, an administrator, a staff member, you have a true privilege to be able to bring that critical faith aspect into your students' lives. Right, thank you. So I'm, what I'm gathering from all of this is that this unified integration of all of the subjects, as, as in all honesty, can only be achieved within a Catholic setting. Uh, I, I know this because I was educated secularly, and uh, there really is this kind of fragmented disconnect even amongst disciplines. Uh, without this understanding of a of a unified integration, so within the Catholic setting, you've got this unified integration, but it points towards one common goal. What what you're telling me is that going going back to what you said earlier, that this common goal is holiness. There's a unified teleology that we're talking about. So uh, I'd like to ask you to comment on that. That that this entire purpose of this is to draw draw us back to this concept of holiness. Uh, yeah, just I want to pick your mind on that. The longer I teach, the more open I am to my students about how I want to get them into heaven. What soccer coach would tell uh, the players? Well. I just want to see you as a mediocre soccer player. You might get some points in the game, but just do a little bit, try a little bit, maybe stand there, let the ball go by you. That, that would be atrocious. That would be an absolute abomination. What do you do? You push your players. Yeah, you need to make those goals. You need to get those points. You need to at least try. Is it going to happen every game? No. Now, I'm, I'm no sort of a star athlete, so my uh, analogies there might be imperfect. But the point being, no matter the setting, a leader is expected to push his or her disciples, if you will, so when it comes to my students, I tell them, I want to call you uh, St. Jimmy one day, St. Jane. I want to see you in the communion of saints. And then I have to make sure to qualify, 
not too soon. It's up to me to try to get myself there first. I don't want any phone calls from home saying that I uh, am seeking a student's demise too soon. But, <laughs> but I truly want to get them to heaven. And the more open and transparent I'm about that, it clears the air. It clears the air. So they know that if they ask me about a hard teaching of the Catholic Church, uh, if they ask me about uh, perhaps something that uh, could be confusing, they know that I'm going to do my best to try to convey to them what is good, holy, and true. I am not one to sugarcoat things. I am not one to pull the wool over one's eyes. I am not one to try to obfuscate what the reality is in terms of matters of faith. I like to challenge my students in that way. And I tell my students often, if you feel comfortable about how you are doing as far as the kingdom of God is concerned, that's a problem. What track runner would say uh, to a coach, I feel comfortable with how I'm, I'm performing. I feel comfortable with how fast I'm running. Heavens no. You're gonna be pushed harder. You're, you're not meant for comfort in that way. You are meant for excellence. So as far as the spiritual life goes, I call my students to excellence. I try to model that for them as best as I can but I try to call them to spiritual excellence, to spiritual success. So as far as that call to holiness is concerned, when students realize that they're called to holiness, when there's this universal call to holiness, which we've seen emphasized within the church really over the last five decades or so, that clears the air and it gives them that Belief that they can be holy. The evil one, Satan, does not have any desire whatsoever to see us as believing that we can be holy. The word Satan, the term means the accuser. Oh, you have uh, sold your body, therefore you are a prostitute. Oh, you've stolen something, therefore you are a thief. You've told a lie, you are a liar. When we're given titles, we tend to live up to them. So if you believe, oh, well, I'm just a liar. That's who I am. Why try to change? Why try to amend my life? I'm just happy in my sin. Goodness, that's where the evil one wants us. Jesus, meanwhile, similarly points his finger, but in a way of saying, that's not who you are. You may have lied before, but I call you to something greater. You may have committed an act of sexual immorality. I call you to something greater. You may have committed a sin of language. I call you to something greater. 
So just like how a physical doctor, how a physician will call his or her patients to something greater physically, so too does the divine physician call us to health of the soul. So as far as my students are concerned, we really talk about it all in class. I tell them my class is an open forum within reason and always maintaining a level of respect. But I am going to try my most earnest to convey to them how Jesus wants them with him for all eternity one day. Jesus is not ambivalent about this. We know this from John 3, 16, uh, 17. Those two verses. So when we look at how Jesus calls us to that holiness, how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but might have eternal life. Jesus clears the air. So therefore, since I, as a Catholic school educator, have the capacity to participate in that process, it's a privilege to be able to participate in that process. It's not a right. I sometimes stump people by saying, I, I do not have uh, the right to be in this role. Uh, I do not have the, uh, the erroneous ability to dig in my heels and say, this is where I am. I have the duty based on my participation. I have the responsibility to clarify the gospel for my students. I have that privilege to clarify the gospel for my students. I have the capacity and really ultimately the joy to be able to discuss the gospel with my students. Thank you very much, Justin. So, uh... Owing to that, then, if uh, especially within this context of an open forum, you've already touched on this a little bit. What what you're striving to do is generate a capacity of right reason, so that they can think rightly about the doctrines and dogmas of the faith. It's not just a matter of 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 this endowment of rules, if you will. It's it's this uh, it's this journey of being trained into thinking critically. Uh, what I'm seeing here is a kind of uh, interplay between faith and reason that, that John Paul II so beautifully uh, elucidated on. So I, I, want, I want to ask you, uh, in the place of catechesis, in the place of you as a theology catechesis teacher, uh, philosophy, this, this science of right thinking, what is its role? Uh, it, even at the high school level, there's a lot of debate as to whether high school students even require an ounce of philosophy at all. Uh, is, is there a place for this within the high school setting at all? Uh, especially since you mentioned immediately after they leave here, they're going to go into universities. So yeah, just, I, I'd like to uh, glean from your wisdom here. 
what is the role of philosophy in the lives of these high school students? What's our response to it as theology teachers? One of the best understandings that I once gained of philosophy as compared to theology is that if rightly practiced, you can barely distinguish them. If rightly practiced, you can barely distinguish them. For undergrad, I attended the University of Maryland at College Park, which is a public university. Uh, it is a non-private university. It's a secular university, if you will. And for some of my peers who studied philosophy, although I did not study philosophy there, at least not formally, I took one class, the philosophy of science, and that earned me quite a significant quantity of time off purgatory. Uh, due to how much of a challenge it was. But as far as philosophy is concerned, one of the tremendous follies of philosophy as currently understood is that we have to begin somehow at the level of atheism and then build on it. The Catholic Church teaches the opposite, that we take God's reality, his presence, for granted, and then our ability to ruminate upon knowledge stems from that. So we sometimes seem surprised when we run into situations in which a straw man argument is presented to a person of faith, and then that person of faith does not have the philosophical aptitude to work against it, and then their faith is questioned, and then the baby is thrown out with the bathwater, and then they begin a downward spiral of matters of doubt. Whereas, if we have, similarly to how we talked about a robust catechesis earlier, if we have a robust philosophy, then we have the intellectual tools to be able to pick apart those straw man arguments, to be able to identify truth in an argument. I live in the DC area and it perhaps is ground zero for an intersection of ideas of different categories of philosophy within the political, within the religious, if you will, within different cultural elements within society. It's an intersection in various ways. So I often find myself having, I don't want to use the word debates, but maybe seriously considered conversations with people on different matters. And it's astonishing, really, how many who may not necessarily have a deep respect for those who profess religious convictions might have made up their mind about religious people. So much so that perhaps there's an arrogance that accompanies that in terms of being able to attempt to defeat someone who has a religious mindset. So within schools, 
there is an increasingly significant need to have philosophy for our students. I bring it into my classes. Uh, some schools have a more formal setting within the curriculum for philosophy. But I'm confident that the Catholic Church within our educational settings needs a deeper impulse to have more philosophy with our students. Aquinas, Catherine of Siena, Albertus Magnus, so many different figures throughout church history who have contributed to the intellectual robustness of the Catholic Church that we have. One of the things that I really enjoy going over with my students is uh, Aquinas's proofs, his proofs, five proofs, if you will, of God's existence. And I encourage them to look at how they can apply this within various avenues of, of their lives. And all of a sudden, they start to see the world differently. The universe, the cosmos becomes more beautiful. A simple interaction with nature becomes more than a merely physical experience. I know that you're a fellow nature lover. I'm a long life, uh, lifelong wildlife enthusiast. Ever since I was little and wanted to be a veterinarian, I started reading books about animals and so forth. So I can look at an organism and see how remarkably beautiful it is. And that beauty stems from the creator of that organism. It's not an isolated beauty. It's not compartmentalized. If we see within nature any category of magnificence, and we cannot ascribe a higher power to its implementation, then its beauty is a subdued, inadequate beauty. So in terms of what we can lead our students to do, it is to consider the world through the eyes of faith. Then all of a sudden, they're going to see things differently. I don't know if that sounds pat or if that sounds cliche, but to see things differently so that when they get to college and they have a professor who uh, might as well have been Lenin's protege himself or Marx's protege himself, okay? Then they can say, wait a second. What is the root and the goal of this ideology that you're emitting? What's its end game? How has it impacted society? Overwhelmingly for the negative, if, it, if it's a, uh, an atheistic worldview. Where have we seen this before in history? And what are the arguments that are in place to present an alternative to this worldview that is so counterproductive and destructive? So increasingly, we need in Catholic schools to be able to have the capacity 
to give our students the tools via philosophical training to be able to seek objective truth, to be able to counter claims of moral relativism, to be able to say that there are some things that are black and white. And for those areas of gray, when there are issues that present areas of gray, to be able to have the nuanced conversations that delineate the why behind why there is more to consider here beyond a simple black and white. So sometimes things are objectively true. Sometimes they are requiring more explanation in terms of professing the reality that is in place. And that's something that is so categorically necessary increasingly within Catholic schools to be able to do. Many universities already have this in place, but we need to infuse this, frankly, within K-12 Catholic education. The earlier we get students thinking, the more they have the capacity to grow in their knowledge. And the more they will know that, as you mentioned earlier with St. John Paul II and his emphasis on faith and reason, on fides et ratio, the more they will understand that our hearts will not rest until they rest in God, to use St. Augustine of Hippo's famous quote. Yeah, thank you very, very much, Justin. This got me thinking about this, uh, this other problem that Pope Benedict XVI highlighted very early on in his papacy. This, uh, he called it the dictatorship of relativism. I personally have seen it to be a kind of poison that's, that, that's infiltrating the minds of, of every generation that's coming forth uh, in, like from us and beyond. And it's terrifying. You, you even mentioned it earlier that, that it necessitates an ability to take a look at objective truth and fact and reality and to be able to juxtapose that with this contradictory position that's being uh, offered. So uh, as a kind of final consideration uh, in terms of this philosophy thing, would you, would you just walk us through uh, relativism as a whole and uh, how, what is the, the response of Catholic education in the face of this, this, this horrible poison that is relativism that students are inevitably facing as soon as they leave our schools? I'll begin by saying that every ideology has a human origin. Every ideology has a human origin and every truth has God as its origin. So every ideology has some segment of fabrication and of inaccuracy as far as the truth is concerned. So when we look at moral relativism, Again, two words there, moral and relativism. And this time I'm gonna flip it, I'm gonna flip relativism first. Relativism in and of itself is not necessarily problematic, okay? Uh, if someone asks you, how are you doing today? And you say, oh, I'm okay. Okay, that's a relative term, okay? Um, are you more okay than not okay. 
So when we talk about moral relativism, when we talk about relativism itself, if we say, oh, I'm okay, okay, that might be a, a relative term. If somebody is being attacked by a bear and all of a sudden they're rescued, they say, oh, now I'm okay. Well, you're just being attacked by a bear. How okay can you be? If somebody says, oh, you look down today. Oh, no, I'm okay. Relativism. Now, let's look at moral relativism. Oh, if I believe something, no matter what I believe, it's okay. If I believe that abortion is right, who are you to tell me that it's immoral? If I believe that capital punishment has no moral concerns, who are you to tell me otherwise? Uh, if I believe that anybody can marry anyone else, who are you to tell me that that's not necessarily to be condoned, or at least to be approved of? Moral relativism is a problem because it removes the ability to talk about what something objectively is in its essence. Marriage, for instance, is not a man-made institution, and even different religions have not had this understanding within history. It has been understood as the eternal, covenantal, lifelong, fruitful giving of a man and his wife to each other, man and woman. So if we talk about redefining that, then all of a sudden we run into any number of categories of conflict in terms of what constitutes marriage in and of itself. Or if somebody says, well, I don't personally believe that uh, uh, that that abortion is uh, immoral, so how could somebody tell me that it is? If we look at what occurs in that scenario, which is the taking of an innocent human life, then all of a sudden, it's not simply a matter of what one perceives or what one may believe independent of any other consideration. It is what objectively happens here. One of the examples I often use when I pull the rug out from under moral relativism is that of uh, the Aztec worldview. Within the Aztec worldview, okay, there was human sacrifice. There were those within that cultural setting, within that societal setting who believed that we have to kill people in order to satisfy our deities. Somebody might look at that and say, oh, well, okay. If you believe that, all right, well, I guess you have to kill the man and cut out his heart and, and throw him down the stairs of the temple. Okay. That's not all right. Although this may be a belief, it is one that is fraught with 
moral conflict. It is immoral because taking someone's life, independent of self-defense, taking someone's life is immoral. To simplify things, we don't need to go into the nitty-gritty as far as the morality is concerned here. So with moral relativism, we look at the reality that there are some objective truths. Then we are really getting into the philosophical underpinnings of what is right and why it is right, what is wrong and why it is wrong. And that requires theology. An opinion is not adequate. Uh, even one's own personal experience, although it's a valid consideration as far as the human experience is concerned, still, when you bring in your own personal experience, you open yourself up to looking at what is the impact on society as a whole. Since anyone's actions cannot be limited to that individual, they're always going to have a ripple effect in some way in society. So when we look at moral relativism, that probably is one of the more problematic situations that Catholic educators have the capacity to offer an alternative worldview to. And I love Benedict XVI. I know that you do as well, Marcus. And he said it right in categorizing it as a dictatorship, saying, this is the way that things go or else. When we look at, uh, in modern times, different ideologies, different mindsets, uh, tend to have a my way or the highway approach to them. Uh, we see this within gender ideology. Uh, the Vatican last year put out a statement, male and female, he created them. And I recommend anyone listening or watching to, to read this statement because it talks about how Catholic educational institutions need to recall that we need to look at what the gospel says about this. The phrase, male and female, he created them, is not a construct of the Vatican or of the Congregation for Catholic Education specifically within the Vatican. These are the words of Jesus Christ himself within Matthew 19, from the very beginning of Matthew 19, in which he's echoing the words from Genesis 1 the very first chapter of Genesis. So when we look at a dilemma within society such as gender ideology, which Pope Francis has so often criticized, and outside of the church, we don't hear a lot about how much Pope Francis has really spoken out about the widespread dictatorship, if you will, of this, but it really is a quite problematic situation as far as uh, the youth are concerned. And what is the role of Catholic schools in terms of professing the dignity of everyone, the inalienable worth and value of everyone, on one hand, and on the other, 
challenging everyone to holiness. That we all have some cross to bear. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if you wish to come after me, you must first take up your cross daily and follow me. You must take up your cross daily, every day. What is it in your life that is your cross? I will help you carry it, but you need to take it up daily and follow me. So when we talk about the issue of moral relativism, it's one in which Catholic schools have such a unique capacity to proclaim that truth exists, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that all of us are called to follow those moral teachings in order to respond to Jesus' call to holiness within our lives as disciples. And that's right from the moment of our baptism. When the priest or deacon says those words, I claim you for Christ. I claim you for Christ. We are the Lord's. We have the benefit of being the Lord's. And we have the true and tremendous capacity and duty and privilege and wonder to be able to participate in that discipleship. Wow, that, that's uh, this is a this is a perfect time to bring this podcast episode to a close, Justin. But uh, before we do, I just want to ask you, in in your wisdom as an educator of uh, so many years and, and uh, immense experience, to speak to the younger people listening to this podcast right now, whether they've gone through Catholic education or uh, they are young people who have children who are about to go into Catholic education or people who, have, who, who are undergoing Catholic education right now, just um, a word for them to appreciate this, this gift that they could never get anywhere else. And they might probably never realize the fruits of this until they uh, reach the beatific vision. So ju just a kind of word and exhortation uh, for people out there in appreciation of Catholic education. Well, thank you, Marcus, for the podcast. I'm going to close with this in light of your question. So the Congregation of Holy Cross, of which Bishop McNamara High School, where I teach, is uh, a, the, the overseer, if you will. The Congregation of Holy Cross sponsors McNamara. The motto of Holy Cross is Ave Crux Space Unica, which is hail the cross, our only hope. Hail the cross, our only hope. If you were to go back 2,000 years when the Romans were crucifying Christians, burning them alive, feeding them to the lions, heavily persecuting Christians up until 313 with the Edict of Milan, on and off up until 313, but the official stance of the Roman Empire was that Christianity had no place within polite society. If you look at the, the crucifixions that were happening, crucifixions were what the Romans reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. I don't know if you can see it on the screen, but here's my cross. This is my crucifix that I always have on. And 
when we look at how the cross is our only hope, that may seem strange that an instrument of deadly torture would be a sign of hope. Here we are on the Monday of Holy Week. In a few days, we are going to recall Jesus's own passion and his death. Prior to celebrating his resurrection six days, first we recall his passion and his death by crucifixion. So with the cross being our only hope, Jesus is our hope. In a world with so many different mixed messages, how do we know that Jesus is the correct one? We know that because every teaching that he gave, every expectation that he has for us is oriented toward the good. There is no time where Jesus lies, where he has a power trip. I love C.S. Lewis, and he talked about how Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord, his famous trilemma there. He was either insane, and there's no indication of this due to the consistency of the gospel. He was either a liar, yet every promise that he gave, he has brought to fruition, or he is the Lord. I encourage anyone watching or listening to, to learn more about what C.S. Lewis meant there. I'm not going to go into it all now, but ultimately, with the cross being our only hope, when we look at the cross and what the gospel implies and denotes, then we see there a hope that the world cannot give, a peace that the world cannot give. The liberation that we find in following Jesus is a freedom that, to look at Paul's uh, description there, it is a, a freedom that is ultimate. It is a liberty from sin. Both Jesus and uh, Paul talked about slavery to sin. So especially to the youth, in a world that is so filled with so many different categorically monstrous teachings, if you will, that seem to somehow outdo themselves with each passing day. Here we are proclaiming bold truths, not simply about God's existence, but about how God as our Father has our ultimate good in mind. Everything that Jesus professes within the Gospels is oriented toward our good. So this is my challenge that I give to everyone listening. We have the Easter season coming up. I encourage you during the 50 days of Easter, read through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Maybe anyone listening uh, has not done that. Maybe uh, it's been a while, but either way, to bring it together and to see how within the good news of Jesus Christ, 
we have that beautiful message. And to my fellow Catholic educators, likewise, we need to take seriously our call to call our students to holiness, to have a certain joy ourselves. And that joy can only come in participating in the gospel ourselves. Otherwise, we are deluding ourselves. If we are trying to fill this role, yet not taking seriously what Jesus is calling us to do, which is to build up the youth. The youth are so close to the kingdom of God, and it really is a joyful privilege to be able to participate in calling them to that holiness in terms of building them up as disciples of Jesus Christ. Thank you so very much for your time and your wisdom, Justin. Uh, so for all those of you who are listening, thank you very much for joining us on today's episode. We hope to have you join us again for future episodes. I'm Marcus Peter, your host for today, the president of the St. Peter Institute. And I've been talking with our guest, Justin, Justin Van Lee McLean. Uh, Justin is a blogger for the National Catholic, Catholic Register. He is a consultant and writer at Ave Maria Press. is the author of numerous books. I would recommend you taking a look at some of his books. They're all available on Amazon. Uh, and he is a theology teacher and Spanish teacher at Bishop McNamara High School in Washington, D.C. Justin, once again, thank you so much. It's been an honor to have you. Uh, until next time, brothers and sisters, God bless you and keep you. Mm-hmm.